Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Considering the alternatives, growing older is really not all that bad. The frame of mind that we develop and carry with us as we age controls much of how we feel and behave. James Earl Carter Jr., more often known as Jimmy Carter, the 39th President of the United States, has recently written a book called The Virtues of Aging. He's our guest this week. One of the many issues that he discusses in his book, The Virtues of Aging, is how much money is being spent on elderly people in the United States now. Jimmy Carter writes that most political leaders have only recently acknowledged what many experts have long recognized. The future of the American Social Security system is in serious trouble. A few statistics will clarify this basic problem. When the Social Security system was first established in 1935, there were about 40 wage earners supporting each retiree with their tax contributions. By 1990, there were only 3.3 workers for each recipient. And by the year 2010, when our children are likely to begin leaving the workforce, only two people will be paying for the retirement and medical expenses of one senior citizen. By then, official projections are that the total federal cost of Social Security and Medicare will rise to 50% of the taxable payrolls of American workers. Government spending on health care has also been skyrocketing. When Jimmy Carter was born 74 years ago, the government spent only about $1 per person per year for health care. In 1965, it was $100, less than the amount of money we spent per capita on defense. In 1975, it had risen to $1,000 per person per year. And in 1995, it was 7000 All of this is before the mass of baby boomers reach retirement and Medicare age. Even now, many older Americans cannot afford either health care or the exorbitant costs of some insurance policies. Jimmy Carter goes on to write, The substantial disparity already exists in government expenditures, with 12 times as many federal dollars being spent on the average retiree above age 65 as on a child under age 18. If we look at the total federal government entitlements, even including welfare and Medicare for the poor, households earning above $100,000 a year receive more than those making less than $10,000 a year. Today, about half the federal budget goes to pay for programs for the elderly. If basic changes are not made in these entitlement programs, it has been predicted that by the year 2013, the entire federal budget 
will be going to pay for the elderly and for the interest on the de federal debt. Now, of course, if there were to be changes in these programs, what would happen? In order to claim a balanced budget, the President and Congress are applying hundreds of billion dollars from Social Security taxes to the general fund. Taxes are more than enough to pay current benefits and will be sufficient until around the year 2030. But after that date, there will be a 25% shortage of funding. So let's look at the problem. We Americans vote in a ratio roughly equivalent to our age. About 20% vote at age 20. 30% of the people vote at age 30. 40% vote at age 40. 50% vote at age 50. And about 60% vote at age 60. This accentuates the political power of the 35 million of us over age 65. There were just 3 million people in 1900 over age 65. Those people will remain politically alert during the average 19 more years of life after a person reaches the age 65. These are some complicated issues that are raised in the virtues of aging. Another significant theme in President Carter's book is the importance of staying active and involved, both physically and mentally. He says, do what you want to do and don't do what you don't want to do. I spoke with President Jimmy Carter by phone recently, and I asked him what prompted him to write the book, The Virtues of Aging. Well, I came to realize after my own experiences, Barry, that that an adult American spends more than half our total adult life after retirement. And so many of us don't get prepared for it, and a lot of people fear it. There's a lot of prejudice against old people by folks still working, and they feel like they too much of their money goes to finance retirement for other folks. Um, we don't know the pleasures and enjoyment of life that comes with uh, retirement years and with growing older. So I wanted to describe two kinds of virtues or blessings. One is the blessings that we receive when we do reach our older years, and also the blessings that we have to share with others while we have free t more free time and more flexibility in making our own decisions about, uh, about our lives. You talk in the book about the importance of making careful and thoughtful decisions uh, for people in their retirement years, but how do you help or how can a person be directed as to what is a careful or thoughtful decision? Unless they have that background, if they have the education. Well, you don't have to have education. One thing we all have to remember is that no matter what kind of a state we have, where it's just one house or, or practically nothing or a small bank account or an extensive holdings, we have one common heir. In other words, all of us have an inheritor that's going to get a large portion of our estate, and that's the federal government. And if we don't even fill out a simple uh, form will, leaving the, our estate to our wife or our children, then Uncle Sam's going to get most of it. So 
So that's one of the things that we can do. Another one is just to see what we have to offer others and, and make decisions accordingly. We might uh, uh, have done something early in our life that we really enjoyed or visited a place that we really liked. Now we have the freedom to go back to that place or to do that same thing again. <clears throat> or we might have had some talent in our lives in the past that we felt that we had. We'd like to explore a little more, like making furniture or watching birds or playing a guitar or whatever. And now we have uh, freedom to make our choices, and we can take up those uh, hobbies. If they work out, fine. If they don't don't work out, uh, try something different. So I think that, that for us just to make plans for how we're going to spend the rest of our lives is a very important thing. I was 56 years old when I left the White House. I didn't have a job. I lived in a tiny little place with 600 population. I, I was uh, way in debt. Uh, my last child was leaving home, and I came to realize I had at least, on the average, 25 more years to live. What in the world was I going to do with 25 more years to make my life, you know, exciting and enjoyable and adventurous and unpredictable and gratifying? And so that's kind of a uh, situation that Rose and I found to be applicable to us. And I think what we did in our lives has a lot of lessons for others to learn, and I've used a lot of other people's uh, lives that are much older than I am, by the way, uh, to show that there is a, a wonderful life after retirement. Do you feel that uh, your life after retirement would have been different if you hadn't had the privilege and the opportunity of being president of the United States? It would have been different had, had we not been the first family of the land, but it's, it's no different as far as the opportunities we have and the blessings that we have. For instance, one thing that we do for just one week out of every year is to go and build a house working side-by-side side with folks uh, in, in Habitat for Humanity. Uh, last year, we built a, uh, 100 houses in Houston. We had several thousand volunteers. All of us had a great time and a very challenging and enjoyable time. We were the only ones that ever lived in the White House. The rest of them didn't. We've become pretty expert fly fishers. There are millions and millions of people in America who do better fly fishing than we. None of them ever lived in the White House. You know, we play tennis, we ride bikes, we climb mountains. Uh, we do some writing, we do some teaching. Many people uh, do uh, similar things, maybe not exactly the same, but similar things, who've never lived in the White House. I think we had a special problem when we, when we left <clears throat> and, and, uh, and went back home in that I had put my very profitable business in a, a blind trust so I wouldn't profit by the decisions I made when I was president. And when I got out of the White House, I lost the election, I found to my horror, I dismayed that, that I was a was million dollars in debt. And everybody in the world knew that I had been involuntarily retired, you know, from my job. So You didn't want to leave the White House. Oh, I did. I, I was counting on four more years, and I was going to plan on what I was going to do after four more years. But all of a sudden, I found myself out of a job and, and with no prospect of getting one. So the things that we have carved out for ourselves since we left the White House are are exactly the same things that are enjoyable and challenging and gratifying that any other American uh, can do, if not exactly what we do, then some of the things that are just as good. Well, have you found that, and of course you, this is a hard question to answer, but do you feel that uh, doors are more open to you because of your experiences in your life than they would have been open to you had you not been president? Well, there's no question about that. For instance, the other 51 weeks of the year when we're not building a habitat house, we go, we, the, we work at the Carter Center, and we have global programs. In fact, we have uh, programs in 35 different African nations, 
and I have access to any leader on the earth, just about. You know, a president of a nation, if I visit, you know, Ghana or Sri Lanka, or if I go to India or wherever I go in the world, since I have been the president of the greatest nation on earth, I can go in and see the president or talk to their leading scientists or their leading educators or their leading agricultural experts and so forth. So there's no doubt that I have access to, uh, to both knowledge and people in places that I wouldn't have had uh, when I was president. But that's those kind of uh, challenging uh, projects that we undertake at the Carter Center is not what makes our life most gratifying. It's basically the, the simple things in life, how we relate to other people, how we share what we have, or how we communicate with the folks that live right around us in a little town of Plains, how we relate to our church, or if I was a Jew synagogue, or if I was a Muslim to the work in our mosque. Those are the kind of things that, that make us have a wonderful life, how to repair uh, injured feelings with people that we really care for, how to form a better and closer uh, tie among other family members. Uh, those are the kind of things that are available to anyone, no matter what they've done before. I'd like to take a moment and say that our guest this week on Radio Curious is President Jimmy Carter, and we're talking about his book called The Virtues of Aging. President Carter's statement a few minutes ago that the federal government will take a substantial portion of the estate of a person who dies without a simple will is not entirely accurate. The federal estate tax is levied on the estate of a person when the amount of the estate exceeds $625,000 in value. A simple will does not remedy that situation. If the value of what you own exceeds $625,000, it would be to the benefit of your heirs to have a will or a living trust. You should consult an estate planning attorney on that matter. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Before we return to our discussion about the virtues of aging with President Jimmy Carter, I want to play a little tune for you. It's always been a favorite of mine. It's called Get Up and Go. It was put to music by Pete Seeger after he found the words on the back of a menu at a roadside diner in Wisconsin in 1961. It's sung here by Tom Paxton. How do I know my youth is all spent? Might get up and go, just got up and went. But in spite of it all, I'm able to grin and think of the places my get up has been. Old age is golden, so I've heard said. But sometimes I wonder as I crawl into bed With my ears in the drawer, my teeth in the cup My eyes on the table until I wake up As sleep dims my vision, I say to myself Is there anything else I should put on the shelf? But donations are warring and business is vexed I'll still stick around to see what happens next how do I know my youth is all spent? My get up and go just got up and went. But in spite of it all, I'm able to grin and think of the places my get up is been.
When I was younger, my slippers were red. I could kick up my heels right over my head. When I was older, my slippers were blue, but still I could dance the whole night through. Now I am older, my slippers are black. I huff to the store and I puff my way back. But never you laugh, I don't mind at all. I'd rather be huffing than not puff at all. And how do I know my youth is all spent? My get up and go, just got up and went. But in spite of it all, I'm able to grin and think of the places my get up has been. I get up each morning and dust off my wits, open the paper and read the obits. If I'm not in there, I know I'm not dead, so I eat a good breakfast and go back to bed. And how do I know my youth is all spent? My get up and go, just got up and went. But in spite of it all, I'm able to grin and think of the places my get up is been. How do I know my youth is all spent? My get up and go, just got up and went. But in spite of it all, I'm able to grin and think of the places my get up has been. That was Get Up and Go, put to music by Pete Seeger and sung for us by Tom Paxton. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Let's return now to our conversation with President Jimmy Carter. What would you say to younger people, people who are in their 20s and early 30s, who have achieved their um, education and are ready to enter the workforce? In our family, we have three generations, really. Rosa and I grew up during the Depression years. Our three boys are what you might call baby boomers. And Amy came along 15 years later, so she would be, like you described, she's a Generation X, I guess you'd say. And I think that, that for all three of those generations, this book can be, be valuable, because if you're only in your early 20s or early 30s and you're just starting on a job, you might want to start preparing already of what you're going to do after you are no longer fully employed. You might want to take up hobbies, or you might want to take up a talent, or you might want to start having interest or making investments or making plans for the future uh, decisions concerning your own estate. So the planning for what we are going to do when, when we reach our grandparenthood or when we reach a point where we can have freedom every day and not have to go to a job and punch a clock, uh, those kinds of things can be very intriguing, very exciting, and challenging, even for someone who's still bogged down in the workforce. So I don't think there's any doubt that just as we plan our careers when we become college freshmen, at least we might change our mind a couple of times, uh, we, we still, when we get through with college and get a family established, we need to start thinking about what we're going to do maybe 20 years in the future when we're no longer on the job. 
In your years of being in politics in Georgia and then as President of the United States, you've had an opportunity to keep your finger on the pulse of America and of the American people. Could you characterize for us uh, the changes that you've seen from the time when you ran for president and during your presidency and up through the present time? Well, I think, I think the political situation has gone downhill dramatically. How do you mean? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. When I ran for president against uh, Joe Ford, who was incumbent, living in the White House then, and later when I ran for president against uh, Governor Ronald Reagan at the time, I never referred to them as anything other than my distinguished opponent or my worthy opponent. Uh, if I had run a negative TV spot, it would have been suicidal for me because I would have been roundly condemned for trying to tear down the character or the reputation of my adversary. Nowadays, because the election laws have been twisted around in their interpretation, an enormous amount of unlimited uh, contributions called soft money, it cannot be spent to promote a candidate, what the candidate stands for, but it can be spent to tear down the reputation of the of the candidate's opponent. So this means that, that the flood of, of TV spots and radio advertisements, even in the newspaper, that we see prior to any election is primarily oriented to savaging the reputation of both candidates for a given office. So this turns the American people against politicians in general, and, and there's a general prevailing uh, belief in this country that that, uh, that the people who serve us in the state capitals or in Washington are, are kind of uh, scoundrels or no good or are not completely honest, but I don't think that's the case. Another thing that it generates is intense animosity in Washington. I got along great with Republican leaders and with uh, Democratic leaders when I was a president who served in the Congress. In fact, sometimes I got along better with Republicans than I did Democrats. Now there's such a sharp and bitter daily division between a Democratic president and his staff in the White House on the one hand and Republicans who dominate the House and Senate on the other that there's almost a lack of even congenial conversation. And I think that in general in our nation there's kind of been a disillusionment with, uh, with politics. That's why we had the lowest voter turnout early this month that we've ever seen in history. You talk about a subtle measurement of life's quality being the degree of interest we have in things outside of ourselves. How do you relate that to the downhill trend, as you characterize it, of American politics? Well, I don't think there's any doubt that, that one of the best things that we can do to have a stimulating and enjoyable life of our own is to stretch our minds and hearts to encompass people who are different from us. But that's one of the things that's most difficult for a human being. We have a tendency to build kind of a cocoon around ourselves so that we can live in an environment that's predictable and homogeneous. That is, everybody that we look at, everybody that we meet, everybody with whom we have a conversation are basically just like us. Their skin is the same color as ours. They live in the same general kind of house. They drive the same kinds of cars. They might go to the same church or synagogue. And, and we are a little bit reluctant to take an adventurous uh, attitude and actually get to know people who might be a little bit different. And, and I think that that means that we live a very restricted life. Over a period of time, we tend to become more vegetative. You know, we just do the same thing every day. We maybe watch television a while. We might read a few books, and that's it. 
And, and, and there's no adventure or excitement or challenge or unpredictability uh, to our lives. Whereas if we are willing just to take a little bit of a chance and get to know folks that are different from us, some of whom might be in need, I have to admit, then that opens up a great sense of uh, gratification. I've never done anything that for other people that I thought would be a big sacrifice for myself that I didn't find was a great blessing for myself. And I think that's one of the things that we are learning now in modern day life because we're spending more and more of our time, you know, in retirement, <clears throat> in retirement when we don't have to go to a job every day. And uh, if we just learn to share it with others, it's a great thing for us. Mr. President, I want to ask you about a sentence in your book from a couple of years ago called Living Faith. Okay. You said to me, faith is not just a noun, but also a verb. Right. I wonder if you could characterize what you what the form of that verb is and how it how it is manifested. Well, I try to describe in that book that my faith was not just religious faith, although that's a dominant aspect. I also, also had faith in the things that I learned, say, in the U.S. Navy, one of which was to tell the truth and to revere service to, for my nation. I I had faith in my country. I had faith in the word and the actions and advice of my parents, and so forth. So I think faith is something that is not just uh, an impression that we receive that, that we might just absorb in our minds, but faith is something on which we can act. It gives us uh, the courage to take a chance on, on new ideas and on, on new adventures. So I think that if we do have uh, faith that is sustaining, that gives us a good foundation in life, that means that we should use our life for something that is gratifying. And it doesn't have to be just to sacrifice ourselves for others. As I said in, in, uh, in my most recent book, uh, The Virtues of Aging, I think one of the highest priorities of a retired person is to be happy, to have a good time, to make decisions that, that now you can face with a great deal more freedom than ever before in life. If you want to do something, do it. If you don't want to do something, don't do it. Those are the kinds of things that I believe can be predicated on a life of faith. We have faith that we'll have a reasonably secure life. We have faith that we're not going to starve to death. We have faith that some people love us. We have faith that we have a community in which we can find fruitful uh, endeavors. Or we have faith in our own talents and abilities. Those are the kinds of things that uh, come under the heading of faith. And I think all of them ought to be invested. I like the way that we form a new verb in the English language. All right, but well, I don't mind that. <laughs> Mr. Frank, President, I, I understand we're coming right to the close of our time, and I, I would like to ask you the question I ask all of my guests at the end of an interview, and that is, could you please tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, one of the interesting books I've read about uh, the aging process is called The Age Wave. It's written by Ken Dykewall. And Ken Dykewall describes the tremendous impact on American society of the enormous increase in population with the baby boomers and how this is going to affect every person who lives in this nation for the next 20 years. And, and I believe it's going to be the, the foundation for, the cause for, the, the most critical debate and argument and divisiveness and require the greatest wisdom in, in resolving a problem of any issue that I know how to face. And I think if anybody is interested in this, they can either read The Virtues of Aging, which I wrote, or a book that really shaped my thoughts a lot, and that is The Age Wave. The man's last name is D-Y-C-H-T-W-A-L-D, Ken Dykewald. 
President Jimmy Carter, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Enjoyed it, and goodbye. James Earl Carter, Jr., more often known as Jimmy Carter, was the 39th President of the United States and the author of The Virtues of Aging. The book that he recommends is The Age Wave, How the Most Important Trend of Our Time Can Change Your Future, by Ken Deitwald. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. They're also available in CD format for $10 each. At Radio Curious, we appreciate your thoughts and ideas about our programming and enjoy hearing from you. Our address is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541. Our email address is curious at radiocurious.org. You've been listening to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.